Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of EGT Reads. This is your host, Jennifer Ipp, and I'm here to introduce a very special story brought to you by an Elk Grove author. Her name is Ginny Grossenbacher, and she actually leads a writing group called Elk Grove Writers and Artists. Her debut book, Madam of My Heart, won the 2018 Ippy Silver Medal for Historical Fiction and was a finalist in the 2018 American Fiction Awards for Historical Fiction. The excerpt I'm going to be reading from today is from her second historical fiction novel, Madam in Silk. The story follows Ah Toy, who has just arrived in San Francisco, newly widowed and without a job. California has entered the gold rush, and everyone is trying to make it rich. Unfortunately, no one wants to hire a toy, despite being able to speak fluent English. So, what is a woman to do? Let's find out. Madam in Silk by Jeannie Grossenbacher Chapter 1, Overboard, San Francisco, U.S. Military Territory, February 1849. Atoy's husband, Tong Chi, told perfect lies, but for once he told a perfect truth. San Francisco Bay was a canvas of wondrous blue sky, mirroring placid water that lay like a sheet of glass. As soon as the Brig Eagle entered the massive inlet, Ah headed to starboard, her lotus shoes pinching her bound feet. She grasped the railing as the trading ship rolled toward the dock, avoiding ships at anchor. The Eagle's timbers creaked as sailors scrambled up and down ratlines, pulled down flapping sails, and fed rope out to the longshoremen who waited, their arms outstretched. The pungent aroma of rotting fish stung her eyes. Her mystical inner dragon woke. Its nostrils flared, its eyes wide. For a moment she pictured Tung Chi's body, gray and still. Only a week under sail and consumption claimed the angry man. Gone was his nest of perfect lies about San Francisco. The weather would cure his coughs, they would escape his grasping brother Tung Chao, they would start their business anew and grow rich. When she objected, he backhanded her, leaving her cheek raw and sore. Even now, three weeks later, she saw the sailors tighten the canvas shroud around his body and heard the few words of the captain, May God rest his soul. She had stood next to Chen on the eagle's weather deck, the wild winds whipping around them. The black water of the deep Pacific opened its jaws to receive the plunging body disappearing under the waves. The captain asked, Do you wish to say a prayer, Mrs. Toy? She shook her head. She had no sensation of grief then, nor now. Maybe she was numb. Maybe she was relieved. So many times in Guangdong, called Canton by the British, she had wished him dead. But now, behind her, the blue waters churned in the bay, swells that pushed back through the Golden Gate Straits. 
Out beyond, the Pacific Ocean expanded endlessly until it stopped, China standing in its way. Had she really crossed the largest body of water on Earth? She swallowed hard, her inner butterflies rising and falling with each breath. Thank you, Goddess Mazu, patron of the seas. You delivered me and Chen safely to shore. Erratic shouts in different languages from sailors and brown-skinned dock workers rang up and down the wharf. Ah watched horses draw away stacks of crates and open wagons. Some drivers arrived with empty drays waiting to load barrels of porcelain, silks, and dry goods. Symbols for fish, tea, and rice marked crates on the dock. Men loaded heavy equipment onto other large drays. Guangzhou's wharf sounds were a mere hum compared to the bustle of this place. San Franciscans must be building houses, churches, and businesses. People who lived here would be hungry. People would want fine clothing and furniture for new homes. Round-eyed men moved everywhere. Many workers were tanned like the shoes wore in Hong Kong. Where were the women? In Guangdong, one would see them padding about in their bright ji bao, children dancing by their side. Here? Maybe men kept them indoors like dolls. She sucked in a breath. Women of the rich, the wealthy, the highborn. The captain joined her for a moment, puffing on a ball clay pipe. She looked up at his full beard and even brown teeth. You told us to watch the bustle at Long Wharf but I had not expected this. She pointed at two wagons colliding on the dock. He let the smoke stream out of his mouth. My shipping company says the first loads of American miners are on their way to the gold mines. The city is preparing to house them. He looked over at the next wharf. Look there. Following his direction, she saw the California, a U.S. mail ship. What is going on there? Who are all these men, and where are they headed? The captain ran his pipe stem lazily across his lower lip. My company says the California carried dozens of prospectors who board here at Panama City, East Coast men crossing the isthmus to save time. The California's passengers and crew scuttled off the ship as fast as ants toward a sugar mound. Around her, in what the captain called Yerba Buena Cove, the harbor filled up with deserted ships left on the tidal flats. She said, How can they leave their valuable ships? Aren't they worried someone will steal them? The captain puffed a breath. I think not, Mrs. Toy. My purser says the treasure they seek lies in California's Golden Hills. They will be richer than Midas, according to reports. She waved her fan, clearing the pipe smoke between them. You are not joining them? If you know the story of Midas, you understand why I do not abandon my ship. No, I did not learn about your Midas in Guangdong. Mrs. Daly taught me the Bible. He puffed thoughtfully. According to the Greek legend, King Midas quested after gold. No matter the amount, he was never satisfied. So, he wanted more and more? The captain nodded. 
in the end, he was overcome with his obsession. He died of starvation. She cringed. I saw people starving to death in Guangdong. He lifted his pipe stem and pointed it at the California. Watch and wait, Mrs. Toy. Gold would do funny things to these men. He glanced toward the foredeck. But now I must leave you and wish you Godspeed. We are soon to disembark. He strode away toward the sailors awaiting further orders. Smack! The gangplank hit its mark and dust rose on the dock. Scruffy, ill-shaven men in an array of brown coats and hats waited there. They stepped back, greeting the passengers leaving the gangplank. Smith, over here! Some men in top hats and frock coats pressed others out of the way and pushed ahead down the line. O'Leary, your driver is waiting. They tugged their friends off the ship, clapping them on the back. They waved down a trio of Cantonese merchants in silk jackets, whom they piled into a waiting wagon. Ah shambled over to portside and scanned the bay. Brown hills lay to the north side, dotted with trees. A curl of white smoke spiraled up from what might have been a campfire. Clusters of gray fog draped over the tops of hills and rested there as if someone had flung coats over the backs of chairs. She glanced over her shoulder. What happened to Chen? He had been below decks as they entered the straits of the Golden Gate. A heaviness drew her into the ship's white planking. What would she do all alone? This new land would be unbearable. Besides, he had her suitcase. She headed toward the passenger line amidst other people shuffling down the gangway. The minister and his family surrounded her. The tall Reverend Daly and his thin wife Elizabeth, along with their boys Freddie and James, came all the way with her from Guangdong. Elizabeth drew near. The boys are wondering about that set of flags. They pointed at tall buildings with signal flags that sat atop a hill facing the shore. I do not know what they represent, she said, then returned to the view. Such a strange intimacy about this bay, like Zhuzhuang, what the British called Pearl River Delta and Guangzhou, the same dotted islands. Little five-year-old Freddie broke into her thoughts. What do the flags say, Mrs. Toy? Ah peered down into his brown eyes. I am not sure, but I think flags tell the ships what to do, like the flags on the eagle. See? She pointed up at the red, white, and blue flag hoisted on the mast. What does that flag say? James wedged in between Awe and Freddie. America. Her word traveled upward in the air. The children's voices echoed her own excitement, but soon the dailies would go to Monterey, if only they did not have to go. Elizabeth taught her English grammar and pronunciation since she was ten years old. English was the language of America, but the whole family spoke Cantonese since they spent the last ten years at their Baptist mission in the river city of Guangzhou. Ah turned to Elizabeth. Have you seen Chen? His name conjured pictures, his cue, a long braid winding down his back, 
his black jacket resting neatly on his broad shoulders. Elizabeth's eyes narrowed. The orange feather on her bonnet swayed in the breeze. Maybe he is gathering all of your bags. He should join us soon. Reverend Daly patted her arm. Our driver is leaving now. The ship's purser arranged a local man to take us south. He tipped his hat. We hope to see you both and Chen again soon. Mrs. Er, Toy, will you still be going by Mrs. now, even though you are a widow? Certainly. Ah absorbed the stark realization that she was no longer married. Goosebumps rose under her thin silk cloak. Is it always this cold in California? I miss the warm breeze that followed our ship from Hong Kong. You are forgetting, Elizabeth continued in a soft tone. We are from Boston, so the weather in San Francisco is new to us too. We hope it will be warmer in Monterey, where we are headed to the Reverend's new mission church. Yes, of course. A sharp needle of loss dug into Ah's chest. Elizabeth allowed Ah to master English alongside her brother at the mission school in Guangzhou, even though girls were not usually taught there. In China, girls were never allowed to learn English, let alone in a school with boys. What would she do without her teacher in this town of so many men? Elizabeth pressed a paper into Ah's hands. Our address, Monterey. We will send for you to come for a visit. After you are settled here, of course. Her voice radiated a familiar warmth. She had never abandoned awe, even during her most desperate moments. I will miss you, Ah whispered. She brought a shaky hand to her forehead. As soon as I arrive, I will write you. Elizabeth's arm encircled her shoulders. Ah mumbled into Elizabeth's cloak. Do not forget to send the word sheets you always make for me. I like to practice my English vocabulary. Elizabeth's hand tapped hers. You are fluent in English now, like a proper Bostonian. Any further study will be refinement. But do not forget to look up words you do not know. Remember the Cantonese English dictionary I gave you. Elizabeth squeezed her shoulders, then took long steps to rejoin her family. Thank you, dear friend. Ah waved as Elizabeth rejoined her husband. The dailies made their way down the plank, the boys scampering ahead, then wading down with upturned faces. Ah grinned at them, yet a niggling thought persisted. The last page of this book was now read, so it was time for her to close the volume and submit it to memory. What would happen to her now? Chapter 2 Mr. Brown After the dailies vanished down the wharf, Ah could wait for Chen no longer. Where was he? She took a series of tiny steps down the plank. Curses. Her toes curled under in an inconvenient distortion, her lotus feet a Chinese emblem of nobility and bondage. Since the lotus came as an honor during childhood, she had known no difference. Though she could usually take small, quick steps on flat surfaces, the uneven surface of the deck poised a challenge. She stifled a rough sob. Would she ever get used to this? 
Long ago, her parents said that marriage, wealth, and dignity were her future. She shook her head. Now, at twenty, she looked back at that childhood fable. Sure, there had been a fancy wedding to Tong Chi. Sure, there had been wealth, but never dignity. Meanwhile, she held on to the side ropes of the gangway, pitching forward, then back as she made her way down the wharf. Chen's familiar iron grip caught her wrist. Though a wave of relief washed over her, she poured out her Cantonese words against the wind. Where have you been? I thought you had fallen overboard. You missed the daily's departure. The reflected light from the water glistened on his striking features. His smooth skin pulled taut over the elegant ridge of his cheekbones. I have been ill, Si Tai Po, my mistress. The waves entering the bay spung my stomach around like the moon. I did not want you to see me that way, especially after Tung Chi's passing. Drops of sweat clung to his forehead. He spoke Cantonese with the Mandarin accent, having been raised north in Beijing. I see. She stepped forward onto the dock, Chen's arm at her elbow. And she put a dragon's energy into her words. You scared me. Don't do that again or I will gnaw your eyebrows. She cast an eye over their luggage at his feet. Good, you have brought Tong Chi's suitcase. What will you do with his things? Save them for now. They are of the finest quality. Very well. He offered her a bemused grin. I, I am sorry to have frightened you. I beg forgiveness. She could never stay mad at him for long. I must know where you are at all times. Her tone softened. We are alone, you see, without Tung Chi and a white man wearing shabby light blue pants and a careworn gray military jacket shuffled toward them, all the while doffing his greasy-looking low-billed cap. A badge clung for life on his left lapel. Who is that? Chen's expressive face turned somber. The stranger's voice rang out. Mrs. Toy? The breeze ruffled the shafts of gray hair rising from his head. I am. Her feet throbbed. After the uneven plank walk, her ankles radiated shooting pains. Besides, a chill wind whipped her sleeves. Good. A full salt-and-pepper beard covered his mouth and his blue eyes crinkled. She pointed at his jacket. Are you in the army? He raised a hand to his forehead in a sharp salute. Dragoon in the Mexican War. In 46, I served alongside General Kearney at Santa Fe. He shook his head, a faraway look in his eyes. Lost too many men from New York, where I come from. Stopped by his word dragoon, she wondered. That was a word worth looking up in Elizabeth's dictionary. She stole a look at him. How did he manage to eat underneath all that fur? All sorts of scabs and ticks sprang to mind. Besides that, he carried the foul stench of rough living. He held his cap against the tall roll of his stomach. You are the first celestial woman to arrive in San Francisco. His eyes followed the arc of her fan as it fluttered back and forth. Oh, no other Chinese women? 
She waved the realization aside, like brushing yellow paint on a scroll of chrysanthemums. He leaned down to her and extended a hand which she did not shake. Name's Harold Painter, part-time with San Francisco Police Department, part-time with the Thompson Agency. Exchanged letters with you and your husband in Canton. She aimed the tip of her fan. My servant, Chen. He exchanged nods with Chen and moved back a step. Uh, your husband? Died. Buried at sea. She steadied her gaze on his wide-eyed expression. Please accept my deepest sympathies. But you traveled the rest of the way alone with your servant? She nodded. We had other companions aboard ship. Your people have strange customs. He scratched his ear. On these shores, we do not let our women folk travel with men unless they have a chaperone. But then, of course, I am sorry for your loss. Awe tinged his voice. Sure didn't think you could speak English. Guess I forgot about the British in Canton. Ignoring his comment, she set her hand on her waist. What about positions you promised me and my husband in the business of a rich man named Sylvester Brown? My husband was to build a porcelain factory here in San Francisco with this man, and I was to help with Chinese translations. Though my husband is no longer with us, I would like to work in that capacity for Mr. Brown. Of course. Your English is, well, very good. He rubbed the back of his hand against his mouth. Now was the time for him to take her suitcase, her arm, and help her and Chen to a waiting transport, if not a rickshaw, at least a wagon. Why was he hesitating? His jaw muscle quivered. I hate to tote this news, Mrs. Toy, Mr. Chen, after your sea journey and all, but she broke in. I have many bags to carry. Do you not have a donkey, a wagon? She drew open a pouch dangling from the belt on her waist and lifted out a Hong Kong silver coin. Well, yes, but there is a problem. Painter glanced at the money. Her dragon's warning whispered in her head, but she ignored it, holding out the coin. Here, take me to Mr. Brown. Keep your money. His beard shifted and his focus strayed away toward the bay. What? She took a moment. Maybe Mr. Brown's house was burning down, or he was sick with plague, or his children were threatening to kill him. Something terrible must be wrong. She placed a hand on Chen's arm. His muscles were flexed and taut. Painter shook his head. Brown, the man I told you about, well, he lost everything. Gambled away at Faro. Wouldn't listen to anyone, not even his wife. Lost her, too. She up and left him, sailed back to New Orleans to her parents. Her former sympathy drained into the bay. Where is Mr. Brown? She dropped the coin back into her pouch. If he did not want the money, she could use it. She had several more secreted from her husband before they left Guangzhou for Hong Kong that night. But who knew how fast she would spend it in this new land? Tong Chi never let her handle money. With his death, the family's wealth would be managed by his brother, Tong Chao. Painter shrugged. Dead. Found out at Washerwoman's Lagoon last week. Must have got into a bad fix. Throat slit. Brigands or gamblers probably trying to collect their dues off him. Nobody knows for sure. What about other jobs? 
My husband died. I want to work. Emptiness hollowed the pit of her stomach. I can translate from Chinese to English. I could not interest anyone else. He crossed his arms. Why not? He raked his fingers through his beard. Your letter said you had bad feet and were limited in walking. I can see for myself you are not fit for strong labor. A servant has to walk miles toting baskets of heavy items. I have never been a servant. She eyed her lotus shoes. Curses. If only she had unbound feet like Manchurian women. Painter leaned closer. Now, your partner Chen here might be able to get him a laboring job up in the Gold Hills, where it is Celestials are working in mines there. Of course, I would have to separate you. He gave her a hard smile, the dry skin cracking on his lips. She heard the quick intake of Chen's breath. No, we stay together, he said. After she swallowed what seemed like a rock, she found her voice. If you knew this, Mr. Painter, why did you not contact us in Guangdong? If only her dragon would reach out its fangs to bite him. I tried, but even when I sent your husband the letter, I knew you would not receive it by the time you sailed. News came too late. He twisted the brim of his cap. Now what do I do? Those dragon fangs would tear off that hair on his face, then she would feed it to the chickens. He reached into his inner coat pocket, drew out an envelope, and held it out to her. Here is money to get by for a month. Lodging, room, and board. Only a month? She took the envelope, her hands trembling. Painter's patient tone grew curt. I got you a room in Little Canton until you can get another ship's passage home. You better leave on the next sail. Believe me, without a job, you are a gone circumstance amidst all these varmints. What are varmints? she asked. She tapped the badge clinging to his lapel. Men with no good intent. You'll see men who call themselves hounds from New York who parade around town with fife and drum. Stay away from that lot. They prey on immigrants such as your fellow celestials and Mexicans. Then there's men called Sydney Ducks, prison mates from Australia. These gangs are flooding our city, carrying their thieving arsonist ways direct from down under. They pick on unsuspecting folks like you, especially because, well, you are different. She took a half step toward him. I am strong, willing to work. Maybe if she said the words, they would come true. Was her dragon listening? He gave a nervous laugh. Mind my words, Mrs. Toy. This town ain't no quilting bee. You are so fragile, dainty. You cannot mind for yourself. Why, look at your tiny hands, your feet. He stepped back, his gaze flickering over her. Such a fine figure. He flattened his right palm over his heart. Why should I believe your story? She bit her lip so it would not quiver. He blew out a noisy breath. Why? Because there is a miserable few women here. Mostly none. Not only the ducks and hounds will give you suspicion. Add to them all sorts of dusty miners up to tarnation. They come to the city from the gold hills to get a drink, a bath, and a snatch. God's truth. He held his mouth in a tight, grim line. She gave a sigh and spoke her undeniable truth. I cannot go home to China. Why ever not? 
No family there? He cocked his head. Not anymore. The words burned her throat. My daughters are dead. My mother and father's bones lie crumbling in our family plot, and my husband is food for the sea turtles. Darn shame, Painter said. Would hate to see the end of you here. He whistled out to the road across the pier, and a red-haired driver in a mule wagon carrying whiskey crates drew up alongside him. Flannery, can you give these folks here a ride to the usual boarding house? Flannery nodded, then Painter eased her into the wagon and placed her baggage next to her on the seat next to a crate labeled whiskey. A whiff of alcohol rose from the bottles, and she blinked. Chen settled next to her, holding his baggage on his lap. Was that a determined look crossing his face, same as that second-to-last evening in Guangzhou? The night before their escape, Mrs. Daly advised the three of them about their trip to California, and she had flashed the three extra tickets, then told them the ship would sail the next night and they must leave by midnight. Tung Chi had kept the San Francisco voyage secret from his grasping brother, Tung Chao. He wanted to separate the businesses and start afresh in California. She had no choice but to follow her husband. But now she was here, what was to become of her and Chen? Painter reached up and palmed her arm. Now, Mrs. Toy, best be on your way to the rooms near Little Canton. Then get you both to the harbor master tomorrow and book your passage back home. Do as I say. You hear? Ah withdrew her arm very slowly from his grasp. I shall consider your advice. Though she spoke those words she knew better, she would make a life here or die trying. Flannery clucked to the mule. Sweeney, let's go. The mule nickered, Flannery slapped the reins, and the wagon rolled away from the wharf, bumping across the uneven pilings. After she watched Painter saunter away down the docks, she shifted in her seat, then turned to survey the wharf. Sailors, shipwrights, and boatmen scurried past, headed toward the docks on her right and left. Where were the women? Her question floated in the salty breeze. All passengers now departed. The Eagle's crew were coiling the ropes and swabbing the decks. Further down the wharf, something large and round rolled out of a crate as a laborer in overalls hoisted it aboard a cargo vessel. A melon gained momentum, then dropped with a splash into the bay. Chapter 3 Ripples March 1849 one morning, Ah looked up from the accounts at her writing desk in her shanty on Pike Street and fingered the closed fan resting on her lap. She placed it next to a seagull feather on the desk. For the first time in a while, she gave a cat-like stretch. After wetting her lips, she remembered. A month had passed since their arrival in San Francisco. For some reason, their money slipped through their fingers like sand, and they could no longer pay for the boarding house. Some days they faced near starvation, and some nights they slept curled under canvas sails at the wharf. But, to her credit, Ah listened carefully to Chen and all the voices around her. Her dragon had given her counsel. She lifted her fan and rang it back and forth across her lips. 
Funny that she could not seem to shake these scarring memories. Back then, as soon as white ship owners saw her small stature and bound feet, they shook their heads and doors closed against her. Word about her got around. Who would hire the little celestial lady who walked funny? Yet their doors would open wide when she had money to spend. During those tearful days, she acknowledged Painter's truth. No one wanted a little woman who could not carry heavy laundry baskets for washing in Yerba Buena Cove. But through all the rejection, Chen stayed by her side. Then, after hearing a group of sailors talking about their favorite parlor, where girls posed or paraded naked before them, she had the idea of starting her own looky shop. Pooling her remaining coins, she rented a ramshackle shanty for her and Chen on Pike Street, which led from Washington to Sacramento Street. Situated between the dusty DuPont and Stockton thoroughfares, the shanty soon became home. At the time, Pike Street was home to a rickety collection of shacks, shanties, and two-story buildings, all thrown up in haste. Considered an alley, it was a one-lane street, narrower than the grander DuPont Street, which accommodated two wagons passing at once. Their one-story place stood cheek by jowl with other decrepit structures and consisted of only two rooms. One held the kitchen, the other featured an open room with space for her well-loved belongings, a Buddhist altar, her statue of goddess Mazu, her high chair, two long scrolls, and a screen borrowed from a Cantonese merchant on DuPont Street. She and Chen found a cast-off table on the wharf, and Flannery, the wagon driver, agreed to help them lug it to the shanty, along with four chairs. Another small table served as her business desk. For the most part, she and Chen slept on pallets spread out in the open room, glad to warm themselves by the fire at night. At the mercantile, she exchanged a pair of apple green jade earrings for lanterns, kitchen supplies, pots and pans, and simple chinaware. Since the shanty already had a small Ben Franklin stove with a pipe through the roof, she stood back satisfied. At least they would be warm. The bay breezes penetrated her skin. On the other hand, on warm days, she was glad to prop open the mullion window facing Pike Street letting in fresh air and sunshine into the otherwise shadowy chamber. Each day she noticed more Chinese men on the streets. In Little Canton, stories said overlanders were on their way from Missouri, but already in the fall of 1848, several hundred Americans had come from Oregon, a whole caravan led south by Peter Burnett. The news sheets mentioned that those residents who rushed off to Coloma last May for gold had returned to town, realizing they could get rich quicker by becoming merchants and saloon owners. She and Chen saw a dozen other services pop up, ostlers, library keepers, and more mercantile. The new miners who came by sea needed food, equipment, clothing, and mules. Story said that mining camps were sprouting all over the place, hundreds of them along distant inland streams and ravines, from far in the northern realms of California and across the now famous Motherlode that stretched 120 miles through the Sierra Nevada. Streets filled with young men returning to San Francisco where they sought women, refreshment, and repose, usually in that order.
She and Chen did very little advertising. Once word of mouth got around the wharf, men began to line up on Pike Street in front of the looky shop, word spreading of the gorgeous Chinese beauty within. Some men would visit her once, then go back to the end of the line to see her one more time before heading to the Gold Hills. She became a sensation. In no time at all, her coffers lined with gold dust and nuggets. Bankers opened their hands to her, and men tipped their hats as she took tiny swaying steps with Chen on the streets. Footsteps broke into her waking dreams. Chen's shadow darkened the open doorway to the shanty, an envelope clutched in his hand. From outside, men's shouts echoed from over the gambling den down on Clay Street. Their racket mixed with cries of vegetable vendors and fortune tellers hawking their wares to the unsuspecting miners who customarily gathered outside Ah's looky shop. Sailors and miners assembled in noisy clumps, awaiting their turn to view the wondrous naked Ah Choi. Chen made sure they knew her policy. Watch, do not touch. Chen, come in. After closing the ledger and putting down her fan, Ah gave him a sideways glance. She had always admired his tall and muscular physique, having watched him grow up by her side. When she turned thirteen, her father had given her a boy servant as a gift. A eunuch from Beijing, Chen was one of many youths who did not pass the test for servant to the emperor. Though subservient, he had become closer to her than Toyi Yong, her brother, who was three years older than she. Chen learned Cantonese quickly, and she taught him from the English books Mrs. Daly gave her when she first started learning the language. Last year, he came away with her in haste from China, and she was in his debt. Though they each spoke English well, Cantonese became their sacred language when they were away from Little Canton. This allowed them a secret communication among the many round-eyed faces in San Francisco. Last week, Chen's powerful hand squeezed a man's throat in order to ward him off her premises. The ruffian came back with a cudgel and pounded out some of the boards lining the front of her shanty. Without Chen, she would not have been able to put up rice paper to block the wind, then nail new siding onto the house. And every day, he would arrange the men in straight rows as they waited for a glimpse of her. Chen bent over, and his long queue, or pigtail, dangled over his shoulder. He passed her the small brown envelope. His gaze lingered on the red Chinese stamp for a moment, and Ah held the envelope near the candle and read the postmark, Guangdong. She said, My personal business, Chen. Remember our talk. You know nothing. Better that way. His crescent eyes glimmered like burning embers. I only wish your welfare. He started to back away, but she held out her hand. Please stay. These letters make me tired. She grabbed a small knife and ran it under the lip of the envelope. Her brother-in-law Tung Chao's calligraphy was much like her deceased husband's script, but some of the brushstrokes were formed differently. How many letters had he sent since she left Guangdong? She had lost count, though the pile in her drawer was growing larger. A bitter loneliness dug its claws into her chest. After unfolding the paper, she scanned the columns of Cantonese script, reading from top to bottom, right to left. Ah, it is time you stopped this ridiculous charade. 
As your brother-in-law, I order you to come home. By staying in San Francisco, you are being disloyal to your family. I wish to take you as my wife and produce the male heirs my brother never did. My mother says the house is not the same without you, and she favors our marriage. A good Chinese woman returns to serve her husband's family. You must come back now. The journey is long. They tell me it is several weeks by ship. I am contacting the Kong Chow Company, and I will send my emissary to bring you home from San Francisco. Your faithful brother-in-law, Tung Chow. She spat, saliva blurring the inscriptions on the paper. Tung Chow, my faithful brother-in-law, a marvelous charade, he should know. She clutched the paper, so much like my husband Tung Chi. What lies he tells, yet his eyes are clear, his voice sincere. Stripes on my back still hurt from Tung Chi's whipping all those years, like bad burns. I cannot sleep on my back anymore, and his brother is worse. One time I saw Tung Chao beat a donkey to death on the docks near the factories. She cast a fevered glance at Chen. He said, Many were the nights I put herbal compresses on your back to soothe your sores, Si Tai Po. His voice broke. She pressed her index fingers against the bridge of her nose. She would not cry. Tung Chao does not wish to lose faith with his employees, with his business partners, with his family. Tung Chi prided himself on having me, the subservient wife. Now Tung Chao wants to carry on the tradition. Selfish imposter. His mother misses me. Ridiculous. Her pulse quickened. The woman only wants me to wait on her and massage her feet. But Tung Chao will send Li Xiaoqi to bring you back? Chen asked. That is what he says, but what kind of a threat is Li Xiaoqi? She rang her fingers over the water-smeared calligraphy on the page. I remember that boy growing up in Guangzhou. He must be the same age as you. I well remember, Chen said. His father was in the porcelain trade, and Li Xiaoqi was a courier between the artisans who made the famous Guangkai pottery and the merchants at the port of Guangzhou. I used to think he was full of himself, strutting around. I always thought that his relationship with my husband was a bit suspicious. It was in working for his father that Li Xiaoqi got to know the Toy family's large factory which packed and shipped pottery on the ships to distant shores. She stuffed the letter back into the envelope. Suspicious? That may well be. Li Shaiki was bright, but a bit too devilish for his own good, finding it easier to slough off and lie about it than go ahead and do the assigned work. Ah clucked her tongue, but he was not all bad. Li Shaiki loved his little sister Lily and would fawn over her endlessly. At times she would come for dinner at the house. She was only eight years old and he treated her like a little doll. Chen's eyes narrowed was something twisted in him, though. He told many lies. One could never be sure. I kind of feel sorry for him, especially now if Tung Chao has taken advantage of his loyalty. Do you think that Li Shaiki and Tung Chao could have some kind of, you know, underhanded relationship? I saw my husband and his brother with all kinds. It is possible. Anything more, Si Tai Po? Chen's eyebrows drew together. 
Ah said, I must think on this news. Chen backed out of the shanty and closed the door behind him. He would be filling in his customary post outside on the front step facing Pike Street. Should she destroy the letter or keep it? She extracted the letter from the envelope. Holding the envelope over the candle flame, she watched it curl, turning from yellow to red to black. She gathered the ashes in a teacup and tossed them onto her fireplace hearth, much as Tung Chi used to throw hot water in her face when she disagreed with him. The letter she would keep, along with the rest Tung Chao had sent before this. So, she folded the letter and put it next to the bags of gold dust in her drawer. Thank you for listening to this excerpt of Madame in Silk by Jeannie Grossenbacher. You can find the book on Amazon available as paperback or Kindle. Please like our Facebook page, Elkgrove Tribune, or follow our Twitter for more updates regarding EGT reads or other Elkgrove related news. Thank you so much for your continued support.